Hello and welcome to episode 86 of Herpetological Highlights with me Tom Major and my co-host Ben Marshall and in this 86th edition of the podcast we are going to be talking about some well a group of animals which we seldom talk about you know people are always clamoring for more episodes on these creatures and they are of course tortoises sea turtles oh <laughs> oh yeah no yeah land sea turtles these yeah. are the these are the turtles that took to land developed what are known as elephantine legs which are hilarious gray legs if you've seen them and that's what they actually call them that's the technical term for yeah, tortoises but elephantine gray elephantine yeah gray they've got gray legs yeah, but like tortoise legs aren't always grey. True. I mean, actually, yeah, you're perfectly right. Right. A species, you look at one like of the species... African those those spiky African spurred ones, and they're like they're proper yellowy tan. And we are actually talking about red-footed tortoises in this episode, <laughs> <laughs> which suggests they're not necessarily great grey legs. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of like your your archetypal tortoise. To me, your archetypal tortoise is a dusty grey-legged beast. Which plods around With elephant's feet, elephantine yeah. legs, yeah, yeah elephantine yeah, yeah. being the style, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but much smaller. It would be but... absurd, <laughs> yeah, it would be ridiculous <laughs> if they had elephant's legs. Jesus. Anyway, so um, yeah, this is a Patreon episode for Jeremiah Martin. So thanks very much, Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. And Jeremiah has asked that we dedicate this episode. It's in honor of Jesus Sanchez. So hello, Jesus. And uh, it's probably a bit of a surprise to hear your name on the podcast. So let's get into it, shall we? Should we talk about this first paper? So up first, we have a paper from the Journal of Comparative Psychology, because I mean, we haven't, ha- we haven't, we haven't got a paper from comparative psychology before, I don't think ever. I would say no. I don't think so. I don't think I've ever read anything from from there. I actually uh, googled published... it to make sure it wasn't a predatory journal before we uh, went, took that... took this episode on, and it's not. It's legit. Yeah, thank you for doing that because I didn't have the presence of mind to do that. But I, I, I suppose I just trusted the American psychologist, like APA. To, I thought, oh, it's got APA sticker on it. I'll be all right. Yeah, you're probably right to trust that. Yeah, because. Someone couldn't just stick that on fraudulently. Um, it's published in 2019. Can reptiles perceive visual illusions? Del Buff. Del, how, how are we going with this? Del Buff. I think Del Buff. Del Buff. Illusion in red footed tortoise and bearded dragon. Uh, this is by Santaka, Petrozini, Agrillo, and Wilkinson. Um, yeah. Okay, so so really, we we have a competition on our hands. We are we have a paper pitting bearded dragons against red-footed tortoises. Yep, in a battle of who, wits. On in a battle of wits, who can who can perceive visual illusions? Now, you would think, okay, competition is it's going to be who can be not deceived by the illusion. But I suppose the tack they're taking more is. Nothing to do with co- it's not a competition at all. <laughs> it's just it's I like just trying to there. yeah, it's just trying to work out how these animals are perceiving uh, shapes essentially. Yeah. And if they perceive them as humans do, then we consider them to be the victor because the humans are the supreme animal. Right. See, this is what's a little bit weird here, isn't it? Because actually, not getting duped by the illusion 
would but I don't then, know. I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about they're it. They're lowly detail. beasts, all right? The most they can hope to expect is to be duped by the same illusions that we are. Yeah, a, attempt to reach human intelligence and fail red-footed tortoises and baby yeah. track. No, it's, it's, it's these poor <laughs> guys. They're, they're so, doing their own thing. Should we talk about this Del Boeuf illusion? Yeah. yeah. It's pretty we, classic. Well, it's pretty um, lackluster in my opinion. It's, it's nowhere near as fun as like squinting your eyes and seeing a flamingo. Or, you know, when you press your eyes really hard and then you get the sort of dots. <laughs> I don't think that's an illusion, mate. That's <laughs> just you messing with your eyes. Um, yeah, so this illusion, the Dilbuff illusion, there's basically two black circles and both circles have rings around them. One of which is inside a larger ring and the other circle is in a small ring which closely fits to it. So just imagine there's a circle with a ring that's just 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 outside it and then there's another circle with a much wider ring around it and the rings are very thin and so that gives the appearance to the human observer that the ring within the larger circle is actually smaller than the ring within the smaller circle and that's because the fact that it's contained within a large ring messes us up it skews our perception and it makes us think that the thing inside the larger ring is actually smaller when in fact it's the same size it's just held within a larger ring so the irony this, is the, fi- the figure that they show in the paper, um, it 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 doesn't really it doesn't work very well. They look the same size to me. Are you serious? You see them the same yeah. size, mate? Yeah. You're just you are just the pinnacle of human evolution because when I look at that, even though they're telling me they're the same size, I don't actually believe it. That little one on the right. I no, I got I got confused by the text, so I was reading it, and the text is in it. It describes them in reverse order to they are appearing in the figure. And I I went to look at the so I read the text then I went to look at the illusion and I looked at it and I was like oh that's weird they don't look di- <laughs> they don't look different at all then I reread the text and realised it was meant to be the opposite of what I thought I was looking for and I still couldn't see it <laughs> so I was I don't know I'm gonna I'm gonna quickly look up uh, other versions online just to just to make sure. I can't believe you don't. That fall my for eyes that. are broken. Like, I broken. fall for it in life all the time as well because me and Maya, we have two bowls that we use for eating pasta, and hers is slightly larger than mine, and I always feel like I've given her a smaller portion. Mm. It happens in real life. Yeah, I think that I think there's something about the way it's set up in the paper specifically because I'm looking at other ones online which are almost identical and presumably are identical in terms of ratio of circle inside to circle outside. And I'm seeing it. I'm seeing the one being smaller on the left. That's weird. All right. Well, I don't think we want to get too deep into your uh, perception of reality things yeah. and associated trauma. <laughs> so we'll move on. Uh, yeah. The uh, unlike Ben, this this optical illusion is quite commonly fallen for by lots of animals, actually. And in Huge this paper, they wanted to see, as you've said, do the bearded dragons, which is Pagona viticeps or redfoot tortoises. Kelenidis carbonaria and whether they would fall for this illusion um before we talk about their kind of reactions to this illusion i wanted to talk about the fact that the redfoot tortoise is named after a delicious pasta dish carbonaria i'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly what i was thinking up thinking yeah. when uh, when you said it that's surely it's not named after carbonara it's not named after carbonara no after a bit of googling i discovered that in latin a carbonaria is actually a chimney made for making charcoal. So the redfoot tortoise got its name because its dark coloration with bright red 
patches on the legs, resembles burning charcoal. And this was a name coined by Johann Baptist von Spix all the way back in 1824, which is extremely commendable. It's got a nice poetry to it. Mm -hmm. It's good, isn't it? And uh, yeah, cool names aside, this is actually the first time ever, first time ever, world's first, a reptile has been tested to see if it can perceive a visual illusion. Up till now, scientists have been wasting their time on warm-blooded animals and fish. Uh, and actually birds, and even a shark got tested. And some insects. Weren't there some insects too? Oh, well, there's some insects as well. Oh. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, some bees. <laughs> One mean... species of bee. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. But, um, yeah, in order to kind of test this del because obviously you can't just say to an animal hey which one of these circles is bigger and have it tell you you have to mm-hmm. get you into to a context them. in which the animal can sort of demonstrate what it's thinking and scientists have cleverly adapted this del illusion to work with food and this was a precedent set by some researchers working with chimpanzees actually and they re- replaced the inner circles of the Del Booth illusion with plates of food. And sure enough, the chimps were actually tricked into thinking that the amount of food which was contained within a larger ring was actually smaller than the amount of food contained within a smaller ring, even when the amounts of food were completely identical. So, Im- important assumption on that point. You, you, you've got to be in a setup or working with animals which you know are going to preferentially go for more food when they are offered two choices. Exactly. You have to be able mm-hmm. to be sure that that's what they want. Yeah, yeah. And actually, um, yeah, that that's how they started off this paper. That was the first thing they did. They wanted to see if animals do, in fact, select the larger portion of food. And they did that by just presenting them with two amounts of food, one larger than the other. And this is where the redfoot tortoises began to show their true selves, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, the other important thing to mention is the food they're using in this context is is mango jelly for the yeah. tortoises. Apparently, so, tortoises love mango jelly. Well, and brilliantly, it can be turned into a perfect circle for the sake of this illusion. I think it's an absolute masterstroke using jelly. We used jelly in a year seven physics experiment, which was designed to demonstrate to us that if you heated something... It, the reaction would occur faster. So it was like us melting jelly in different temperatures of water. You know, jelly cubes. Mm-hmm. I ate quite a few jelly cubes and there were a, at least one or two jelly cubes stuck on the ceiling of the classroom. <laughs> that, I can't take responsibility for that, but it was very funny. But so, yeah. So basically what you're saying is you would be susceptible to uh, being experimented upon in a jelly-motivated environment. I would, I would imagine I would. I think you'd probably have to find my exact preferred jelly, as they did with these animals, because Aye. it wasn't the first jelly they tried. And it was different for different species. Like you said, mango jelly for the tortoises, because there's been other papers in the past. Mango jelly is like seriously delicious to tortoises. And they used kale, cucumber and mint jelly for the bearded dragons, which is apparently their favourite, which is very specific. Kale, cucumber and mint all are rolled into one jelly. I've only tried yeah. mint jelly. Obviously, that goes with lamb. Being as I don't eat meat, seldom have it. But um, it's nice enough, you know, mint jelly. But I wouldn't say <laughs> you wouldn't catch me eating it on its own. That, uh, there we go. So, yeah. Anyway, so um, two trials, as we said. First of all, they wanted to see if the animals select the large enough por- larger portion of food. In order to do this, their arena was... Uh, a, they, they put the animal at the top of a slope in the hopes that they could see the two plates of food down at the bottom and then well, they just and let, angled, let them go angled the, angled the, the plates too 
right to, so they to get them as, as flat on as possible because i mean this is a you don't know if this this illusion has a sort of diminishing impact if it's taken sort of at a at an angle where circles aren't circles and you're looking at ellipses so excellent point yeah yeah it's fair so yeah, they wanted to see if they would take the bigger food. And um, much like the iguana from a couple of episodes ago, the tortoises didn't really play ball. They just, they did suss out the experiment. So they worked out that they were supposed to go and eat some jelly, but they didn't ever really go towards all, or they didn't really preferentially choose the larger jelly. They just went to yeah. whichever jelly they looked at first, it seemed like. Just whichever. They weren't bothered. They they actually didn't care. Well, it they either didn't care... So it's sort of okay. They're not. Um, they're not in a scenario that they have to go for the most food. They don't need to prioritize going for more food, or they are incapable of telling the difference between the two sizes of jelly. Yeah, and that was something they said because it's not because redfoot tortoises are a bunch of bozos. Because there's been more experimentation on them, and historically they have been shown that if they can learn to associate different colors with different rewards and also mm-hmm. different um, sizes of reward. So there was a paper by Soldati et al. in 2017, and they showed that if you show your tortoise a specific color and it knows that color is associated with mango jelly, you better believe it's going to go smash into that color as many times as you ask it. And also, uh, if you do it again 18 months later, where the tortoise has presumably been largely daydreaming about mango jelly, it will remember... <laughs> 18 months down the road that that particular color relates to mango jelly and immediately approach it in the hopes of getting mango jelly. So they're not stupid. They can, they can discern things are different from each other and they will use that information contextually to get food. But in this case, they didn't, they didn't go for the larger food. And the possibilities for that are a few, the reasons why it could be that they just don't have that sort of level of discriminatory detail because these mm-hmm. one food was only like 33% bigger than the other, right? Which isn't a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it could be a discriminatory thing or it's, it, it comes down to not needing to, uh, not needing to optimise. I mean, we are, this is this is something that keeps coming up in, in biology and when you're talking about natural selection and all sorts of stuff with this assumption that everything is moving towards optimization which isn't necessarily the case because there's a wonderful step before you reach optimal solution, which is good enough. And that's actually what a lot of things strive for because it, you, you, the, the incentive diminishes once you've reached good enough and maybe 33% less jelly. Well, I've looked at it. I know that there's jelly in front of me. I'll go for that one. And there's no There's no need to put this additional sort of pressure on yourself or... or on I suppose on your movement, whatever, hmm. to to try and prioritize and optimize for gains which probably don't matter at the time or might not matter at all. So yeah, it it could be completely separate from the tortoise's abilities and more about you know, maybe maybe they're just comfortable and they're well fed and they don't, you know. They're just chilling. They don't need yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, you've got to think, what's the tortoise doing in real life? It's bowling up to some vegetation. It's eating it. And then it's turning around. That other bit of vegetation it saw before, that's still there. I'll go over there now. Like, it's fine. Well, and if especially if you're dealing with a species that is used to foraging in a way for resources that might be more stable over time, as opposed to something that's used to... Uh, 
uh, like depredating stuff and, and pursuing uh, yeah. stuff. Like when you see food, you're going to take food then because you don't know the next time you're going to come across something that you can, you know, successfully hunt and capture. Whereas tortoise, that might be a slightly less of a, you know, less of a, less of a mm. driver. So all those pressures to optimize food now are, are just sort of softened and reduced. Hmm. So the tortoises, they did not care. And the same thing happened when they did the Del Bufa illusion. They didn't care. They just eat whatever piece of the jelly they arrive at. <laughs> totally yep. commendable. Conversely, bearded dragons, first of all, when they were offered two differing sizes of food, they consistently went for the larger portion, sort of around 75% of the time. And similarly, when they were presented with the Del Buff illusion, the illusion of a larger plate of food, they went for it. They fell for it, didn't they? Bunch yep. of suckers, just like yep, us. Yep, yep. Just like humble mankind, they perceived the uh, plate within a smaller ring to be larger. And yep, they preferentially gobbled it down. And uh, yeah, this is actually... The first time ever that a reptile has been documented to fall for a visual optical illusion. Mm-hmm. Which is neat. And, and seeing it compared to their reaction to the larger, you know, actually larger food and actually smaller food. And that sort of marrying up and their difference, you know, the difference of the illusion being about the same as the difference to the actual reality of when they were when they were different sizes is yeah, it's pretty convincing. I mean, we're only talking about what nine? No, eight. Eight tortoises. How many? Uh, I think there's twelve bearded dragons. Twelve bearded dragons. Yeah. So I mean, not a not a monstrous sample size, but you know, it's it's certainly uh, it's certainly interesting, and certainly you know, pause for thought. Hmm. Yeah. So. Um... Bearded dragons added to the long list of animals which fall for the Del Buff illusion, which includes capuchins, chimpanzees, um, some fish, some birds. Yeah, what you got? You got baboons, you got lemurs, you got dogs, you got bottlenose dolphins, parrots or grey parrots, domestic chicks, pigeons. Yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah, lots yeah. of lots of species. Yeah. Now, I Even think damselfly. I, I, what? Oh no, damselfish. I was going to say damselfly? What? Why fish <laughs> Damselflies? <laughs> damselflies can't get enough jelly. The, um, I actually think this is a really cool experiment. And it's also an experiment which could very easily be replicated in many, many reptile species. Because how many collections are there worldwide that have got 10 or 15 of a particular lizard? Like, if it's a lizard or t- tortoise which is keen to eat jelly, um, yeah, worth giving a go. Yeah, well, this is this is one of the interesting points they they bring up at the end, which I think is sort of interesting about uh, these sort of comparative studies. So you're you're dealing with this idea. Everybody's got a standardized procedure for this. If you do this study exactly the same for another lizard species, okay, you're going to be able to compare it to the the bearded dragons here and get an idea of which species can do it and which not. But then you have this tortoise situation where they it's not satisfied that they can't do it because they don't seem to care enough to participate. And that sort of undermines these perfectly built comparative studies that work for some species, but then suddenly you get to get to another one and it, and it, and it doesn't quite work. There's always an example I think of in these, in these behavioral ones where they had, they were testing a bunch of different primates 
I cannot remember what the test was, but essentially the lesson that they came away from where they're like, oh, these gibbons, these gibbons are stupid compared to the other primates. Look at them being incapable of solving this puzzle. And what actually transpired was the gibbons couldn't use the puzzle to the same... Uh, they couldn't interact with it in the same way as chimpanzees and things. Because their, their arms hands... Too long. Yeah, no, it's their fingers. Their fingers and their palms are different shapes and stuff, so they couldn't operate the tools and the, and the puzzle <laughs> in the same way. And so it looked like they were just being stupid when really they were basically given the wrong tools for the job. And that might yeah, be the same case we're dealing with But is with being the given the wrong evolutionary tools not the same as being stupid? Ah, no, well... Of course mm, not. Probably That's not. the thing, though, isn't it? <laughs> That's the trick with all of these things. You've got to try yeah. and work out a way to study the, the cognitive ability of reptiles in a sphere which is relevant to reptiles, and they're not doing the same things as us. You know, ask a yeah. reptile to open a can of Coke. It's going to look like an idiot all day. Yeah. But if you ask it to poke its claw into a hole to get a grub, it's going to defeat you. That's exactly it. It, it. It's what do you care about when it comes to intelligence and how does that actually apply to the animal? You know, it, surprise, surprise, the people... <laughs> the people running the trials are the people who are defining intelligence. So it's got this self-perpetuating... You know, we, we're conceptualising intelligence in a way that puts us... You know, it gives us an extra few points, doesn't it? <laughs> so, Yeah. Humans are the best. All right, so let's move on. Uh, paper two. This time we're talking about tur- tortoise again, but this time uh, we're going to the Mediterranean. So this one is Segura, Jimenez and Acevedo. 2020, predation of young tortoises by ravens, the effect of habitat structure on tortoise detectability and abundance published in scientific reports. So we're heading to Morocco to talk about the Mediterranean spur-thighed tortoise, a.k.a. Testudo greca. And this is a small tortoise, maxing out around eight inches long. So the juveniles are obviously pretty small when they're coming out of the eggs. And to add to their smallness, which is inherently vulnerable, they're also a little bit soft, much like a peeler crab baby tortoise. A little bit of spring to that shell, which means its effectiveness as a defensive strategy is perhaps not as effective as it is, well, definitely not as effective as it is when they're adults. And um, perhaps because of this juvenile squishiness, tortoise populations are thought to have quite low survival of juveniles generally, but once they're adults, they tend to live a long time. So kind of kind of similar to humankind's um, demographics back in the day a little bit more, where if you survive your juvenile years, you've got a good chance of growing to be sort of 40, 50, 60 years old, but infant mortality was high. It's the same for tortoises. Um, many, many of them do not survive. Obviously, far greater percentages do not survive than with humans. Um well, it's it's there's a special term for it, isn't it? Was it case selected, where they have a lot of a lot yeah. of offspring, but the chances are very low. But they also invest very little into each uh, each individual. Yeah, tortoises giving or laying eggs are like farmers scattering seeds on a field. They know that not all of them will grow. Many will be eaten by the birds, but a few will survive and become healthy, robust crops, which can then be harvested for food. Uh- <laughs> The perfect metaphor. <laughs> yeah, I suppose if the farmers in this case are ravens? Kind of, yeah, kind of. So, um, <laughs> yeah, the juveniles, basically, they're leading these utterly brutal lives. Many die in the uh, populations of spur-thighed tortoises. Many die during the winter because it's cold and it rains heavily. Perhaps they've picked 
sort of slightly less place good places to uh, spend the cold winter months they do um brumate for the cold months of the year so many of them die during that period and then on the flip side of that many many of them die during the summer because it gets really hot and they're maybe not used to trying to get out of the heat or they're just tiny and they just cook in their shells so many of them die because of the weather but they also have an aerial menace to deal with and that is the common raven corvus corax mm, which means raven raven i believe does that mean does raven mean, raven? Or does it mean crow raven? Or raven crow? I think it means raven crow, ironically. Raven. Oh, the old raven crow. Yeah. Um, surely, yeah, that makes, that's weird. Um, sort of like gorilla gorilla, but a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, there's a, one's, one's Latin and one's Greek. Yeah, it, it's a Latin, it's a Latin Greek thing. One's, they, they both mean very similar things, but it's the language thing. I'm with you. So, um, Ben, you know a bit about birds. If you would say to someone, because I actually vividly remember being out on a walk with you a few years ago, and this was before I could tell the difference between any corvids, and I was quite impressed. We saw some jackdaws, and you were like, bro, they're jackdaws. And I was like, just that's a crow, <laughs> chill out. <laughs> and actually, you gave me a very good reasoned explanation for why it was a jackdaw. I think it was something to do with the colour of the eye and its glossy, silky, smooth appearance. Yeah, yeah. jackdaws are easy because they've got blue eyes and they've got those little hoods on. Yeah, so how would you... To say you saw a blackbird right now flying in the sky, how would you tell me it was a raven over any other corvid? Oh, I thought you meant like a European blackbird. That's a totally different That's a different thing again. You mean a bird which happens to be black. Oh, I'm saying. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> too clever for his own good. So what you do, you we, we're outside, yeah, in this situation, and there's a bird flying overhead and it's black, yeah? It's not a blackbird. Yeah. I can see where you oh, got yeah. confused. It's... We do have the Eurasian blackbird here. That is a bird. But no, this is just a black space bird and it's... It could be anything. How do you tell it's a raven? What are the telltale signs? Uh, I mean, I suppose here it's relatively easy because it's the only sort of large, entirely black bird, like where I am right now. But... In places where you're dealing with it being sympatric or living with carrion crows, you're looking for something which is bigger than a crow, which isn't actually very useful when it's flying because it's hard to judge size without any sort of landmarks. But tail-wise, crows have a sort of more fan-shaped ones, and people say that the raven's ones, it's like having uh, like more wedge-shaped. It's had the corners chopped off, so it's a more sort of squared-off tail. Uh, if you get a good look at the face, they've got a more sort of feathery ruffed uh, feathers over the bill. And they've got a more sort of like shaggy beard area too. And if you're really lucky, it's just going to make a noise. And ravens have a much sort of deeper, croakier uh, vocalisation than crows that have your sort of more classic call. Now, I've seen in the mountains around here in Snowdonia, North Wales, I've seen ravens flying high up on the top of the mountain. And then they do this thing where they turn upside down and go... They Pah! tumble. Yeah. Do they have to turn upside down to make that noise? I don't think so. They just do it for a laugh. Why are they turning upside down and going... Nark? I have no idea why they're turning upside down and going... Nark. But <laughs> it looks a hell of a lot of fun. And tumbling does, is yeah. another thing that you can be like, okay, that's more likely to be a raven than a crow. Crows are far less likely to do that. Mm. And tumbling is just the spinning. Yeah, yeah. Well, they sort of tuck, tuck their wings in and sort of turn over on their back um yeah. what you also get in north wales that will do that a lot are the um the red billed chuffs i've seen them up at south stack yeah mate they love it Very they cool they tumble like no tomorrow mm. oh wicked but completely 
that's completely separate. <laughs> okay, so that's enough about birds. Um, when they're not being enjoyed by the likes of me and Ben twitching, ravens are actually responsible for a hell of a lot of mortality on tortoises, it turns out. In the USA, the same raven, it's all the same species of raven, right? Uh-huh, yeah, At least it's all what, the same. Is that is it is this in like Eurasia and North America? Like, is this bird got a global distribution? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's it's it spans pretty much the entire northern hemisphere. It's it's, it's all over the place. Cool. Um, the only sort of places it doesn't get is as it heads further south. Um, yeah, let me just uh, double check. I mean, I think it's all the way over to like. You know, northern Russia, the whole, the whole thing. Fair. While you do that, I'm just going to say, your bird knowledge was top, <laughs> top billing. <laughs> Pun intended. Yeah, rain. Whoa, they go way further south than even for. I was thinking they go all the way down into Mexico, apparently. Oh, um wow. Yeah, so all the way across. Northern Hemisphere, although this map is, is not actually right because it's saying that they're not occurring in southern England and they most certainly do. That being said, they are expanding in Europe population-wise after, after like, years and years of persecution. So this might be an yeah. old map. And they, they naturally rec- do occur in, in Europe. Were ravens also. part of the recent change that was brought about in British legislation? Um, because what was that? They the I don't the think general they license. Were, I think that they weren't included in the general license to begin with, but there uh, were specific licensing for them. I cannot remember. Really specific question. Anyway, that's just it was. It was definitely other. Um, corvids were covered by the general license. I think ravens were still separate because of their historic persecution and low population numbers to begin with. Right. So I don't think the general license changes have affected their stuff i'm i don't think so that's cool they're, they're so, coming back though populations in europe are, are, are bouncing back i mean they seem so. pretty common around here now yeah certainly i see them you know if, in all honesty if you go for a walk in the mountains here i mean really ravens are what you can hope to see bird wise if you're on the peaks because they've been completely grazed to pieces so well that's just sheep exactly yeah exactly they they've <sighs> They're making use of habitats that other birds can't yeah. cope think... with because of the, the aggressive grazing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this bird, the common raven, is responsible for between 70 and 91% of the mortality of desert tortoises, which is Gophorus agassizii, which we talked about a couple of episodes ago in the States. So they're also predating tortoises mm. over in America. Um, yeah. I was So I did a little bit of reading on that. That was because I was like, that seems that seems nuts. Why are the numbers so high? I was also thinking, damn, there's that many ravens that they're eating all those tortoises. So apparently it's being caused by um, sort of people moving supplementary food sources and supplementary water sources deeper into the desert and things. So you've got towns and and sort of uh, cattle areas with irrigation and, and watering holes for cattle, which is basically providing these little... Uh, like supplementary feeding feeding stations for the ravens, so they eat a bunch of garbage, have plenty access to water that they can fly to within range, and it's causing their populations to sort of boom and then spill over into the desert areas, where sort of naturally they don't occur as in such high densities in these places, but it's all the human resources getting pushed in, 
which you're allowing them to sort of follow the humans and be like, whoa, free food here. And then the spillover spills over into the into the deserts and stuff. Because oh. they're, they're being so like well supplemented by human sort of human garbage and human sort of resources. <laughs> the definition of commensalism, smashing it. Yeah, well, that's what that's what these birds do very good at is is they're they're generalists, so they can make use of a lot of resources. Pretty impressive. So, yeah. in this case, we're actually in Mamora Forest, which is an anthropogenic cork oak forest, and these environments are pretty cool. So it's just loads of these quirk, uh, what is it? It's a type of oak, isn't it? The cork bark basically they're just big trees and their bark comes off in layers very readily and it will regrow if you peel it off and so this is this uh, ability led to cork bark trees being used for the top of bottles right historically mm-hmm. you get a bottle of wine or anything like that and uh, the top is corked with um, a literal cork and so historically speaking these environments were very important and there's obviously a massive demand for these corks and there still is a big demand for cork but I think it's less now because so many bottles of wine are screw tops. Yeah, I remember there was this whole. There was, I I think, there's been a flip flop in this where originally it was people were discouraged from buying bottles with real cork in it because it was being uh, harvested unsustainably, and then the market flipped, and basically all the sustainable, basically the cork forests started disappearing because no one was buying cork, so it was more uh, beneficial to swap the forest out for something else. So then there's been this whole switch back to no support cork because it you don't have to have these horrible plastic corks and the money now goes to supporting you know these cork forests still existing. Yeah. I'm not sure where it is right now in that whole sort of back and forth of working out <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it it is one of these examples of markets influencing the conservation of a of a habitat and and sort of vice versa, I think. Yeah, but it's interesting as well because a lot of people who listen to this podcast will be keepers of reptiles. And if you've ever bought anything cork, a cork product, cork bark, cork flats, that comes from these forests. There's forests in Morocco, which is where we are in this paper, mm. and also Portugal. Um, and yeah, they are actually, although obviously a human resource managed by people, they are woodlands, which have benefit to lots of species. So it's quite an interesting case. Um, yeah. And yeah, they as had long these. As it's done sustainably, I think. I as think that's it. Done, it's making yeah. sure your corks coming from a good place. Yeah, that's the good thing about it is that because the trees regrow the bark, there's no felling or anything like that. Because here, obviously, right. we we have a lot of plantation woodlands, but they just get clear felled. Um, well, and and they're non-native non-native trees too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Mamora Forest, which is an anthropogenic cork oak forest, and four sites within this larger forest environment two of which they described as covered and two of which they describe as uncovered. And that is just to do with the sort of degree of cover in the understory. They're a little bit vague, really, in the paper about what it actually means. So um, <laughs> we'll just think of it as covered and uncovered. Yeah, uh, it's, they're talking about ground cover, though, aren't they? What yeah, they so it's think? either, yeah. if you imagine, like, some woods you go into and there's, like, just trees. Other times you go in, there's trees and, like, a healthy amount of understory, which is lower to the ground bushes and shrubs and plants covered is where there's lots uncovered is where there's few and yeah the authors of this paper were obviously keenly aware that the ravens were eating hatchling tortoises and um the way they do that is the ravens will actually obviously swoop down catch the tortoise and they'll either pull off their head and limbs and eat those or they'll peck holes in the carapace and plastron and eat the tortoise inside um 
And interestingly, the tortoises will only be eaten by the ravens up to around 75 millimetres long. So once they're 7.5 centimetres, the ravens decide, no, not doing that, can't eat those anymore. And they become pretty much safe from raven predation. That said, prior to reaching that size, they are 100% not safe from raven predation. Ravens can eat a lot of tortoises. Um, the, the authors themselves said they were surprised by the high amount of predation by just one pair of breeding ravens, which ate 74 tortoises in a single breeding season. That's quite a lot. Well, how long's a breeding season? That will be. I think they were referring to the, the the active period. Oh, here we go. Sorry, February until the end of May. Well, yeah, okay. So February. Well, March, that's that's April, tortoise breeding May. season. Uh, that's only four months. Do they mean tortoise breeding season or raven breeding season? Don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. They just mean a breeding season, Ben. Don't get all specific on us. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So, um, yeah. Uh, slightly confusing results of this paper, I would say. What would you say the findings were, Ben? I would, I would say, I mean, that what they what they sort of wanted to work out was whether um, sort of what was affecting this this uh, raven's ability to find tortoises and predate tortoises. Yeah. Yeah. And. What they used as a proxy for that was detection probability. So their their capability of finding tortoises in these different areas and what was driving, you know, the, the researchers' ability to find tortoises with the assumption that you know visually finding a tortoise human is going to be related. You know, it's not going to be exactly the same as a raven, obviously, but it's going to be. Uh, like correlated to such an extent that it's 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 going to give you the correct answer in terms of what yeah. is driving that detectability. It's a reasonable proxy. Yeah, and so they threw a whole bunch of stuff. They measured like a whole bunch of site-specific things to do with vegetation and the different sites, but they also measured a bunch of stuff which they felt would determine this this detection. Um, threw it all in a bunch of models. Saw what sort of made the sort of clearest difference to the uh, to the actual results while not being overly complicated. So we ended up with a situation that shows a model where the amount of bare ground as that gets greater, so more and more bare ground, tortoises become easier and easier to find. The implication being uh, that more bare ground is going to allow the ravens to find more tortoises. That wasn't exactly significant though in their final model, so keep keep that keep that in your mind that it's 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 there it's in the model but it's not having a unambiguous sort of impact. It looks like it's more open area, more detection. The other thing that's affecting it is distance to the perch, and this is the perch of the ravens. So they had areas that they knew the ravens were using. They had the what did they have? They had confirmed nest sites, I believe. All of their sites had at least one confirmed raven nest. Um, most had like four or five. Right. But they're talking about perch site here. Is the perch and nest the same thing or are they two different? Uh, they, they, they considered them They considered them together, uh, at least in the picture I'm looking at. So Raven perches and nests were... Reg- okay, so a perch is a nest or a site that they know ravens are using, essentially. Yeah. And that seemed to have the biggest sort of single impact on uh, the amount of tortoises. Well, how easy it was to see tortoises for the researchers. So the implication being ravens using areas that they could easily see 
sea uh, tortoises. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't think they explicitly said that in the paper, though. Well, I mean, that's, I I suppose that's the implication, right? Because uh, yeah, you're you're not the raven. So, but if you're seeing tortoises more when you're close to where the ravens are, you would assume that the ravens are picking those sites because they can see the tortoises easier from those locations. Yeah, that makes sense. That being said, they could be picking them for a whole bunch of uh, reasons. But the way this is pulling out the model and the way that's syncing up, it seems quite likely that those two things, you know, the tortoise detectability and where the ravens are picking are connected. Then you've got this final bit of the model, which is basically saying that this bare ground which by itself doesn't look to be significant, but when you combine it with where the perch distances are, seems to be connected. So are the ravens picking areas that are more connected to open ground? And also that sort of tallest detectability and all those three things are wrapping up relatively nicely to sort of suggest... That's your that's your prime location for ravens taking tortoises, where there's, there's less cover for them to hide... And they're in close proximity to ravens, essentially. <laughs> yep. You know, it, it's syncing up that detectability and where ravens are. So, I mean, I don't know. Is that, is that enough of a key finding? I think you've done exceptionally well there, mate. Yeah, I yeah. think the the bit that's really missing from a study like this, which is a which is a shame, is you almost needed to to treat the ravens as a I suppose it wouldn't be possible to do because you'd have to be. Yeah, you couldn't do it sort of live and sort of temporally, but you could have done like co-occurrence, like raven co-occurrence. Where are the ravens occurring in the habitat working across the same grid as the tortoises, which I sent as essentially is perch. But what perch doesn't do is take into account the sort of relative time the ravens are spending in different locations because what they found here this might be more exaggerated than than what they're showing this might actually be a much stronger result if ravens are spending comparatively longer time looking for tortoises in areas with open cover you know the counterpoint being that maybe they have to spend more time in high cover areas because it's harder to see them but there's there's like that missing little bit of like raven ecology to completely answer this question Mm. but it's it's certainly getting there with the point of wow it's much easier to see tortoises in areas that are appear to be areas that, that ravens are using and they seem to be areas with less cover yeah you know, all that is making a lot of sense and syncing yeah. up it looks as though the ravens are hunting in the, the places they can see the tortoises and certainly that was mm -hmm. corroborated by how many dead tortoises they actually found that I mean, too yeah it was a lot, wasn't it? How many dead tortoises did they find juvenile-wise? They found 160 dead young tortoises were found, and pretty much 88% of them were in uncovered areas, and the main cause of mortality was ravens. So 100% of the tortoises that were found dead in open areas, which was 147, had been eaten by ravens, whereas um, the number for covered areas... Um, only around 20% were related to having been eaten by ravens. The other 80% died by other means. So that goes to show that, yeah, certainly in terms of mortality for these tortoises, they're much more likely to die by uh, raven predation in, in an open area than they are in a closed area. Yeah. And that was also that kind of uh, 
pressure on their survival was reflected as well in the actual um, proportions of different sized tortoises that were within the population. So yeah. Um, yeah. there was a higher percentage of longer and older juveniles, which are over the threshold that ravens would eat in covered areas compared to uncovered ones, which suggests that more tortoises are surviving to a larger size in areas where they're not under such high predation from the ravens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a... Do they do they list all the... Mortality causes? No, no, no. I'm wondering if they they list all the different models they ran and if they put... Where's the bloody methods in scientific reports? It's always at the end. <laughs> you um, had to get your little snipe in. We hate the end. The, we hate the methods at the end. I, we hate I the end. do. I it it's I I really because you really accidentally read it. a paper without really knowing what they did. Well, it can be very hard to put things in proper context because sometimes there's a critical piece of like how you measured something can be really important to what it actually means. Hmm. And if two papers have measured them slightly differently, then it can completely change uh, change what you're dealing with. Uh, yeah, they explicitly state that they're treating their detectability as the same as the ravens, which I think is fair. Um, Detection abundance process was then modelled sequentially. A forward step prize procedure was used to identify the most relevant predictors and explain the detection processes. Same with the abundance. However, I'm not entirely positive what ones they put in for that forward stepwise procedure because I wonder I, I, it's more just a, a side point and not, I don't think it's really affecting their final results but I wonder whether there's also a shift in detectability when the tortoises get larger or not so I wonder if this, this change where you're seeing more of the larger ones is exaggerated by a change in detectability as well because what you see, I mean, I'm just, you know, going by the visualization here, so this is just eyeballing stuff. But once you get beyond that 80 uh, millimeter carapace length, um, okay, it's still similar, but the the higher ones, the 90 to 100, like ramps up crazily for the covered areas. I just wonder whether there's there's more going on with the detectability there as well. And I don't, I I'm not seeing whether they had that in the model at the end of the day. Um, so you're well, saying it had... could just be a vestige of the fact that they're harder to sp- that adult tortoises are harder to spot in uncovered areas, like perhaps they're underground or something. Uh, no, I was more I was more thinking in the. <sighs> I suppose I was more thinking that the adults are easier to find. Um, in general, and that their results might be more basically more exaggerated than what they're saying because if there were any adult tortoises you're you're finding them yeah. so basically the, the that detection probably is going up so for the covered areas yeah you're finding loads and loads and it's super super worrying that you're not finding very many in se- uh, in the uncovered areas because you should be finding them because they have the higher detection probability so I wonder whether it's exaggerating the, it that the other way if you see what i mean mm, yeah um but I'm not sure if that was put in the model or not. And if it was, it would be the case that that's probably not a um, not too big a deal. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I could imagine a reasonable amount of cover being a really like critical element of this tortoise's like habitat selection. I could, you know, you could imagine that adults, an adult in an uncovered area, might just know better than to stick around there as well. That's another possibility. Yeah, I mean, what's nice is they they're very clear on how their sites are quite um they're definitely separate from each other and if you look at where they're finding tortoises in figure four it does appear that all their most of the uh outlying areas they they surveyed don't have tortoises so Mm -hmm. it does seem like they've covered the population so it's it's less likely that there are sort of roots out so they have have something a bit more contained and a bit, a bit more insular. So I, I, I would presume it's less about movement and more about, you know, population and abundance and, and yeah. detectability. But that being said, you know, movement plays into detectability at the end of the day. If they're not moving as much, they're probably harder to find. True enough. So <clears throat> I think the take-home messages from this paper, just that ravens are predating tortoises en masse it seems and that's not a call to go out and you know (laughs) take out some ravens but it's just yeah an interesting aspect of their ecology and there does seem to be some variation between different sites based on the ground cover on how big of a problem this predation is for tortoises yeah yeah no it's exactly that it's it's just a it's it's like uh like sea turtles or anything like that there is a level of predation that occurs on uh, smaller individuals because that's that's just when they're most vulnerable. That's why they have a breeding setup that produces so many young individuals because of potential high mortality rates. Precisely. Yeah. So we've talked about tortoises getting murdered. We've talked about tortoises not, not having any interest participating. in <laughs> yeah, non-participatory tortoises. Let's talk about our brand new species. Uh, of tortoise which doesn't have elephantine legs and is therefore a turtle. This is published in Zootaxa in 2020. It's by Locke Barragan, Reyes Velasco, Willock Pina, Grunwald, Anaya, Rangel Mendoza, Lopez Luna, and it is entitled A New Species of Mud Turtle from Genus Kinosternon from the Pacific Coastal Plain of Northwestern Mexico. So there's quite a good story behind this paper, which I enjoyed. In So we're in Western Mexico, in the state of Nayarit, and on the 23rd of August, 1962, so a good 29 years before uh, I came along in the August of 91, an unidentified turtle was caught 11 kilometers south of Acaponeta, which was reported as a juvenile of a species called Kinosternon chimalhuaca. Right. So that was a long time ago. Someone found a different species of tortoise. What? So what, right? Well, based on the morphological characteristics of this individual, which were expanded upon in 2011 by a paper by Webb, Lopez Luna et al. thought that perhaps it belonged to a different species, which is Kinosternon vogtii, which was Wogti, which was just described recently. However, recently, more individuals have been caught in southern Sinaloa, and they've had very similar characteristics to that original 1962 
turtle. And that has prompted a little bit of a re-examination of that original specimen, which was in the University of Texas at El Paso. And when they had another look, they confirmed that that specimen collected in 1962 was very similar to uh, other individuals, um, which were thought to be Kinosternal Vogtii. And they think now that this population represents a brand new species. And uh, so this paper is describing this brand new dwarf species of Kinosternid turtle from southern Sinaloa and northern Nayarit. So um, they basically had this idea that this was a new species, so they decided to go out and do some surveys. The first night driving survey they did, looking for reptiles and stuff in southern Sinaloa, they actually found one dead on the road, um, which is obviously very sad. However, it did mean that there was an already pre-killed holotype for their species description, which was ideal. And a couple of months later, they went back, did some turtle trapping with some turtle mesh net traps baited with tuna, and they caught a couple more turtles, and that allowed them to describe this brand new species. Yeah, they're little. They are little, aren't they? They're very yeah. little. The largest yeah. one uh, is a female that's 107 millimetres, 108 millimetres carapace length. It's truly tiny. Yeah. They're really, really, really tiny. And they've it's called small. them Kinostern on Cora, uh, which me is derived from the name Cora, which is the native Mexican ethnic group, which is most widespread in Nayarit, which is the region in which this turtle's found. Which is pretty cool, named after the local people. And uh, yeah, Kinostorum cora inhabits low elevations, so it doesn't like it high up, which makes sense being as it's a aquatic animal, uh, or semi-aquatic at least. <laughs> and uh, they don't know a huge amount about this new species. How would you describe its looks? Obviously, we know it's tiny. How would I describe its looks? Um, I mean, it's pretty cute. I mean, that's... that's, that's, that's... It's got Certainly a big meaty head, hasn't it? Well, I mean, I suppose. Yeah, head coloration, I would say, is a sort of dappled uh, orange and, and brown. Um, sort of turns into stripes around the mouth. I don't know, dappled isn't dappled doesn't feel like an adequate word. It looks like a poorly drawn maze hmm. on the side. Tor- it's kind of similar to tortoise shell as well, isn't it? Unsurprisingly. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, quite a pretty little creature. It does have a big head. A little bit of variety in the coloration, sort of generally sort of olivey browny and then a little bit more orange underneath. Um, But yeah, quite a long neck. I mean, it just looks like a classic little miniature turtle, really. Yeah, quite chubby little legs, too. Um, I would say it's a a very... squared off ellipse in terms of uh, carapace shape. And I think what's also neat about it is, what, what do you call the sections of their shell? Are those they're um, not scoots, scoots, are they? They are scoots. scoots. Um, very few scoots. Like yeah. very large side scoots that go from top to bottom almost, and only a trio or maybe four scoots on top. Um, like very very clear large scoots which is pretty cool it's it it i feel i feel like that's quite uh quite a quite a distinctive feature i know what you mean yeah it literally just looks like a little compacted shell doesn't it um and yeah uh one thing about the road killed holotype that i was talking about when they found that individual 
unfortunately, where it had been run over by a car, there was a lot of um, follicles, so undeveloped eggs that were basically splurging out of the side of the road-killed specimen. And they were all different sizes, which suggests that maybe they can produce multiple clutches a year, being as they had mm. eggs in different stages of development. Maybe, but not yeah. definitely. Um, yeah, and uh, they're not sure about uh, conservation classification. The habitat looks great, though, doesn't it? Like, sort of wet, wet deciduous forest. Although they do say that somebody had the bright idea of planting eucalyptus around there, which is now an invasive species, which sounds like a massive pain. But I, I, I never said that, but... <laughs> no, no, it is an invasive, I think. They said it in the paper. Yeah? Yeah. I didn't bring that up, but it sounds... Ah, <sighs> I, th- so I said they. Looking said, at the picture, <laughs> it does. Yeah, yeah, invasive eucalyptus plantations. Eucalyptus gets plants planted all over the place for like forest restoration purposes and all sorts, doesn't it? Yeah, they Not did it a lot in uh, Cyprus. Idea. Yeah. Stupid idea. Really stupid idea, and it. Sucks up so much water as well, doesn't it? It goes really deep. It's really good at getting I, water. I, yeah, I think eucalyptus is also one of the ones that messes with the soil chemistry in a specific way, in a less than ideal way. I cannot remember what it does. Yeah, because the English planted them all over the the English planted them all over Cyprus. And now yeah. they're big pain in pain over there. So uh, yeah. Anyway, this turtle. Brand new species, welcome to science. And um, unfortunately, one thing they said, it's very difficult to monitor the habitat or the species and many other species in this kind of like area of Mexico because, you know, Sinaloa, we've all heard of it because of the cartels there. And uh, yeah, there's just a lot of drug related conflict and crime going on. So hard to do conservation stuff around and about at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Tough. Anything else to add about the new species? Uh, it looks great. It does Love look it. nice. Yeah. Kina Stern and Cora. Cool. Uh, right. I think that's about it for this uh, Chelonian episode. Have you got any other business? Uh, I have a little bit of any other business. Um, Sam Smith's paper uh, from her master's is now out in scientific reports about native pythons? Burmese pythons. Yeah. What? And how they wiggle around in... Northeast Thailand, living in in aquatic, uh, aquatic habitats. Are you co-author on this one? Mm-hmm. Yep. Big up, big up. Congratulations and congratulations to Sam, who I still haven't met, but I look forward to meeting sometime. Um, that's big, excellent. Well, do you want to talk about it, or do you want to do an episode, or how do you want to work it? Give it a link. Um. Yeah. Stick it. Stick it in the show notes for now. If it comes up in an episode, we do it in an episode. I think it would be cool to do an episode. I know that it would be very, very. I mean, I. I want to. There's plenty to get... talk about. I. Yeah, I haven't read it yet, and I'm super keen. Like a, a a paper on Burmese python native ecology screams out to me as something very cool because obviously everything else is like yeah, non-native like ecology. Maybe maybe third one. I think. Um yeah. There are I've a couple, never... but very very small samples. Yeah. Not that this did... one's a massive sample, but it's. How many pythons like, was how many pythons was it? Uh I think it was eight. Eight? That's pretty damn decent. One was a male, the rest were females. Uh sorry, seven. Seven. Seven pythons. It's a lot of pythons still. Especially as like pythons didn't really show up that frequently, at least when I was around looking for snakes. Um They come in waves, I think. 
and again, it's 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 any any snake is tricky, especially if you only want you know adults. So you're actually getting something that's not going to be you know a mess to try and draw a mess to try and draw uh, uh, conclusions from. You don't want a mix of weird juveniles and then yeah. Hence, yeah. hence the push for getting getting females in this one was to try and uh, have some stronger inferences from a sample of, of just adult females. Mm. Cool. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I look forward to getting stuck into that. And we'll put a link in the show notes if people want to read it in the meantime. Yep. Yep. Sweet. All open access. So it's all it's all there. Brilliant. Apol- Wait. The methods section in this one. This is scientific reports. But it's in the right place. In your one? Yeah. They've obviously heard your complaints, Ben. I wonder if that's just an option. You can do it one way or another and they don't care. I did, I did notice that, that that paper that we just talked about had punctuation in the title. And we were told we weren't allowed punctuation in the title. So, we <laughs> so maybe it's different editors having different... Seems very odd. I don't know. Maybe they've changed their changed their things. For Maybe no punctuation in the title is a new rule for twenty twenty one. It could be. It could be. Because uh, the first thing I noticed about this title, the public, the the punctuation sickened me. Oh, well. See, I was sickened by not being allowed to use punctuation. <laughs> it's my life. Yeah, sometimes a little comma can be a bit cheeky, can't it? It can be quite useful, especially if you're trying to make a pun. What's the title of the paper? Uh, the title of the paper, I'm afraid, is quite. Is is quite boring. Um, so I just I just closed it. So I'm one second. Uh, native Burmese pythons exhibit site fidelity and preference for aquatic habitats in an agricultural mosaic. Cool. Whereas the the preprint title was constricted restrict uh, restricted constrictors, and then oh. a bunch of spiel. We were asked to remove the punctuation, and therefore we had to remove any any fun title well i'm sorry that happened yep we'll right. call it whenever i talk about it i'll refer to it as restricted constrictors because i think that's very nice yeah well i mean the preprint still exists with that title so <laughs> yeah. and do you think they eat puppies and cats hmm? do you think the burmese pythons eat puppies and cats i don't see why they wouldn't yeah i always thought they certainly go for, go after um you know, they'll take domestic livestock like hens and, and ducks and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I don't see why they wouldn't take a take a roaming around cat or roaming around dog. Yeah, yeah. Pretty easy for them. I mean, we were talking about snakes that are like, what, three and a half metres long and 20 kilos or something outrageous? You know, these are, these are big snakes. That's what I always thought when I saw... I mean, I only saw a few, but they were always like so close to people's houses and there was always kittens and puppies running around just seemed like too good to be true for the snakes yeah no i i have no reason to think they wouldn't Hmm. none at all yeah cool all right well uh yeah expect an episode on burmese pythons again that'd be cool Mm -hmm. python a day and uh yeah uh, I've got one other item of any other business. We've got a brand new Patreon. Uh, so thanks very much. And big up yourself to Jack Christie. Um, hey, Jack. Really? <laughs> what if, is that the Jack Christie? Surely not. Who's Jack Christie? Jack Christie. He was, uh, he was on uh, Snake Team. I've, I don't think he, I met this person. No, no, no. Long, long, after, long after your time. Well, maybe it is the Jack Christie. 
Let us well, know, Jack. Whether it is or it isn't, props. <laughs> <laughs> all right, sweet. Well, uh, yeah, I guess that all that remains to be said is thank you very much for listening. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Hurphighlights at gmail.com. Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram, that's the new one. Um, and uh, we checked the iTunes reviews the other day and we've had loads so thank you very much if you're one of the people who took the time out of your day to leave us a positive review and say something kind because we read through them the other day and it was just a really nice experience except for the two people who gave us one star reviews <laughs> and didn't even take the time to write a comment we suspect we know who you are and just, just know don't ever rest easy don't ever rest easy <laughs> alright yeah Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. <laughs>